So here we are. We're gathered together. There'll be two to 3,000 of us here, millions around the world, celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in a room like this, uh, we're probably a lot of different people groups, right? This morning, I'm sure there's some skeptics here uh, where you were drugged or invited to church. We're glad you're here. It's okay to be a skeptic, okay? Just don't become a cynic. Let your skepticism turn you into a seeker. What's a seeker? A seeker is someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, but they're willing to investigate the evidence. They're lovers of truth, and truth matters, right? Uh, when you go to a courtroom and somebody's going to be put away for murder for life, the truth better be present. Truth matters. So if you're a seeker this morning, investigate Christianity. And then there's the already convinced. A lot of you are cheering this morning. You love Jesus, and this day is just amazing, as it should be, and that's wonderful. But there's one thing I think all sets of people can agree on this morning, and it's this. That 2,000 years ago, there was one solitary weekend that altered the course of human history, changed the world forever. There was an upstart Jewish rabbi who came from Nazareth. His name was Jesus. Uh... Jerusalem, or Palestine as it was called by the Romans, was a seedy backwater province of the Roman Empire. No one cared about it. And Jesus ministers for three years, and then he's executed on a cross. Uh, a cross was not a religious instrument. No one wore jewelry or crosses in that day. It was an execution stake. It was one of the most vile forms of execution the world's ever seen. And so Jesus was killed and executed upon a cross. That was Friday. Now, because it was Passover in Jerusalem and the Jews didn't want anyone hanging on crosses, they took Jesus down prematurely on a Friday. He had already died, but they took, they would normally let them just linger there and the dogs would eat them from the legs up. So they took Jesus down and we know where they buried him. A man named Joseph of Arimathea, he was buried in his tomb. Everyone would have known Joseph, so we know where Jesus was buried. And then Pilate put four squads, 16 highly trained Roman soldiers who had no religious connection to the Jews and could care less. Sunday, his followers, as you know, the 12 disciples, claimed he had risen from the dead. Now watch this, as he said he would. For three years of his ministry, Jesus declared up front he had come to die. He had not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whatever happened that weekend, it changed the world. We have to agree on that. The reason we have to agree on it, because we're living in the what I call the ripples of the resurrection. What are some of those ripples? Well, we mark time by Jesus' birth on this planet. Time was marked by the reign of kings. Even in the Bible, you'll see, you know, a king reigned 20 years or 50 years, and that's how time was marked. After Jesus, someone drew a line in the sand and said, you know what? Everything before his birth will be B.C., before Christ, and everything after his death will be A.D., the year of our Lord. That's Latin. Now, some smarty pants came along years ago and said, oh, no, 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 we'll call it B.C.E., and AC, it's before the common era and after the common era. But guess what? What do you think the common era was? Yeah, Jesus, right? You can't get away from it. Uh, another ripple is that the four biographies of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the many letters combined to the New Testament, have kind of forged the thinking and philosophy of the West. 
just permeated Western thinking and Western civilization. We have, by millions of miles, more translations of the New Testament than anything else written in antiquity, almost 24,000 copies. It's been translated in almost every language. Jesus, henceforth, has become the most famous person in all human history. More songs have been sung, more books have been written, more discussions have been made about Jesus Christ than anyone who's ever lived. If you don't believe me, try and think of someone else. Very difficult to think about. And then there's his followers. For 2,000 years, his followers, who sometimes did bad things like the Crusades, we're not sure they were really his followers. We are sure they weren't following his teachings. But by and large, the majority of his followers for 2,000 years, again, changed the course of this world. They started the first hospitals, churches, large-scale humanitarian efforts, philanthropy, care for the poor, women's rights. We live in a culture where that exists. We don't realize it did not exist before Jesus, at least not on a large scale. Look at America. We're a young country. Uh, most of our first universities, the entire Ivy League except Penn, were all started to train men for the pulpit. They started as seminaries. Wednesday, we took a group of people down to Temple University here, Robbie Zacharias. And while we were there, the man who was the MC shared that Temple actually was, and I didn't know this, Temple Baptist University. And the man who started it wanted to reach people for Christ. And you could scour the names of hospitals, St. Jude, St. Christopher. You could look at the name of cities like San Francisco, named after San Francis. And the list goes on and on how much the Western world has been influenced by Jesus. And then one final ripple that you have to wrestle with. There may be as many as 3 billion people on this planet today who have some form of allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that's 2,000 years later. They're rich and they're poor. They're Eastern, they're Western. They've come from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Uh, they've come from every religion. And the atheists that converted today are some of our best apologists for the faith. Now, can we use some logic? Everything I just described did not happen because Jesus got down on a knee one day and let little children come around. It didn't happen because Jesus said, turn the other cheek or go the extra mile. Or maybe he healed a few people. These ripples were caused by one thing and one thing only, and that was a man walking for the first time out of a graveyard. You see, for the history of this world, great thinkers and theologians and men who claim to know God and brilliant people like Socrates and Plato, for all that they knew and all they had done, they all walked into graveyards. All their tracks led into graveyards. But 2,000 years ago on this weekend, a man got up and walked out of the graveyard, and this is the engine that drove this revolution that we call Christianity. Now, I know what some skeptics are thinking. Pastor Bob, you've got to be kidding 2,000 years ago, these people were uneducated. There was a low literacy rate. Of course they believe in the resurrection. They needed hope. Life was dark. They were lost. Well, it's actually not true. Uh, it is true the ancients believed in resurrection, but not like you and I think. They believed in resurrection as, as the afterlife. In other words, the Greeks and Romans believed in the Elysium fields, right? 
So when we died, we would be resurrected, but in spirit form. You look through Greek mythology and some other forms of pantheism and polytheism, this is what they believed. So it was kind of like a new life, but in a spirit body. Scholar N.T. Wright says this, ancient paganism contains all kinds of theories, but when it comes to resurrection, if resurrection is ever mentioned, the answer is a firm negative. We know it doesn't happen. If the ancients knew anything, they know what you and I know when they looked over the bodies of their loved ones. When you're dead, you're dead. No one gets up and walks out of a grave. Now the Apostle Paul, who spread Christianity all over the known world and wrote most of the New Testament, he believed that. He writes in 1 Corinthians that if there is no resurrection of the dead, and if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. Kinos in the Greek, it's hollow, it's a shell, it's fake. So even if we took all of Jesus' moral teachings and good teachings and said, hey, let's all gather around, Paul said, you're wasting your time. You got one life to live and your candle's going to go out. Eat, drink, and be merry. Get ahead of everybody else. Climb the ladder. Do what's right and what feels good. Don't go to church and waste your time. Our preaching's in vain. And he said, your faith is in vain. He went on to say that if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than all people. We would be the worst of all people. So the death and resurrection was at the core of what the early church and what we believe today. Now here's a question. Should people have known about what Jesus was about to do? In other words, were they blindsided by the resurrection? Is it something that came out of nowhere? Or was there a foretelling and a foreshadowing of this great event? The next 35 minutes, I'm going to show you Easter in the Old Testament. The Bible Jesus and Paul read. I'm going to show you that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. And this was God's great plan for a long, long time. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you, first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Peter, then the twelve, and then he was seen by over 500 at once, of whom the greater part remained present, but some have fallen asleep, some died. After that, he was seen by James, that's his half-brother, then by all the apostles, and Paul said, last of all, I see saw him, one who was born out of due time. Now, Paul is brilliant. If you ever read the New Testament, Paul was a brilliant man. He was a Jew. He was a Roman citizen. So he's bringing up two forms of evidence. One, eyewitnesses. The 12 saw Jesus. You might say, oh, yeah, of course they saw Jesus. They corroborated this story because they feared for their life. They wanted to start a new movement, which is strange because they all died a martyr's death. But how many in this room, before you came to church today, know that Jesus appeared to 500 at once? How about this? 38 appearances of the resurrected Christ in bodily form. You know what he told his disciples? They thought they saw a ghost, a spirit. See, their resurrection came from Daniel. There would be a resurrection of the just at the end in spirit form. He said, come touch me. Does a spirit have flesh and bone? He ate a fish breakfast with them on the Sea of Galilee one day. He walked through walls. 38 appearances of Jesus. Eyewitness testimony. 
But the second thing Paul says is this was according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Not your New Testament. Your New Testament wasn't even written yet. It was according to the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the 39 books that make up God's revelation to his people Israel. So where is Easter in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus told you himself. He points back to what we call a kid's story, the story of Jonah. He said, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Now, my daughter just went with her other, my daughter, my granddaughter. I know I look too young to have a granddaughter. My granddaughter just went with her other set of grandparents to sight and sound to see Jonah. A kid's story, right? No. Um, read your Bible. It's a story of genocide, actually. The Assyrians, you think the, the people in Syria are bad today? The Assyrians are the worst people that ever lived. They impaled people, skinned them alive, uh, lined their skulls up. I mean, these were terrible people. Jonah, they're so bad, Jonah doesn't even want to go preach to them. He's thrown overboard, and a great fish swallows him. Jesus points way back to this prophet and said, so just like he was in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the early church resonated with this teaching. Uh, I've been to the catacombs twice. It is a very moving experience. Uh, hundreds of miles of underground caverns where people were buried, where Christians during the Roman Empire actually came to worship. And if you look at the etchings in the catacombs, you'll see four common ones there. You'll see, you know, a dove representing Jesus' baptism. You'll see an anchor with the Alpha and Omega symbols in Greek. You'll see the chai row. And then you'll see a whale. You'll actually see a whale and a cross. Because the early church put that together, that Jesus was just like Jonah. Uh, also, we have the prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, and others, who predicted a Messiah would come, right? Christmas. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, you know, a virgin will conceive. Isaiah talks about a suffering servant who was wounded and pierced, that could only mean crucifixion. In Acts, Peter said that all the prophets, all the prophets from Samuel foretold of the Christ who would come. But the clearest picture of Easter, I believe, in the Old Testament was delivered to one man named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night. Scholars, commentators, all speculate why he came at night. Some say he was fearful. He was a prominent member, the ruling class of Israel, the teacher in Israel, Jesus said. And he didn't want to come by day to sully his reputation, so he comes by night. Here's what I believe. I believe Nicodemus saw something in Jesus. He said, no man can do what you're doing, these miracles, the teaching, unless God be with him. I think he was on a recruiting mission. I really do. Nicodemus had a heart for God. He was kind of a Bible guy, as the Pharisees were. And he saw something in Jesus. Jesus was a reformer. And I think Nicodemus said, you can play on our team. And we can do great things for God. And because Jesus knew the heart of every man... He shoots back to him, unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. Now, I'll get back to that in a minute. But, geez, we've been delivered a clunky word, born again. Um, it's been marginalized, politicized, overused, misused, uh, characters, uh, I mean, demonized. I mean, does anyone want to say they're a born-again Christian? 
you know, I, I, I'm non-denominational, I'm evangelical, uh, I'm a Christ follower. The last thing I want to tell anyone is I'm born again, okay? Because the caricature is that I'm uneducated, I was probably a drug addict, alcoholic, or axe murderer. I was down on my luck, and I needed Jesus, right? What's strange about the story is, that's the caricature today, and that's the direct opposite of this man Nicodemus. In our culture, he'd have a PhD, drive a BMW, eat at the finest restaurants. Jesus said, you're the teacher in Israel. He'd have five books on the New York Times bestseller list. And Jesus looks at a man who has it all together. And he said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Now, tone is important. That's why texting's bad. Because you can't see tone. Jesus did not look at him like, if you're not born again, you're not going to heaven. I got the inside track. You don't have it. You ain't going. I think he looked at Nicodemus with tenderness. He said, Nicodemus, it's not enough. It's just not enough. I know you love God. I know for 70 years you've been faithful. You've been serving God. You've been loving people. Nicodemus, it breaks my heart to tell you it's not enough. You can't walk enough old ladies across the street. You can't give them enough offerings. There's not enough you can do, Nicodemus. And I believe Jesus said it with all tenderness because it broke his heart that man was climbing the religious ladder to meet a holy God. And Jesus knew he had come to do something about it. Some of you came to Calvary today to hear, it's not enough. It's not enough. And what Jesus was offering, Nicodemus, he said, you can be born again. You, you can live a life, Nicodemus, where God will literally implant in you his spirit, and you will come to life, and you will know the living God. The last thing he was offering was religion. The last thing he was offering was church. He was offering eternal life. He was offering life with God. Oh, Nicodemus, you can rest. Now, Nicodemus says, well, how does this happen? How does a man who's old... Be born again, does he go into his mother's womb? And we all think he was stupid, right? He was the teacher in Israel. What he was saying is, Jesus, what do I do? This is my life's achievement. Seventy years this is all I've known. Can I start all over again? There's not enough time. How does it happen? Jesus said it's supernatural. It comes from heaven. The translation born again is actually born from above. You're born from above when the Holy Spirit comes in and wonderfully recreates you. We who were marred, we who were at stray, are wonderfully recreated. And it's so far from religion. We get a new heart and a new mind. It's like Ezekiel 36, 37, 8, when God breathes on dry bones. Now, because he was the teacher in Israel, Jesus gave him a Bible lesson. One verse. John 3, 14. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in it would not perish, but have eternal life. Numbers 21, they had no chapters then. You would almost have to be Nicodemus to remember the story. It's a very obscure story in the book of Numbers. But Jesus said, this is why I've come. Just like Jonah, I am the serpent on the pole. Now, let me give you a little background. 
watch the Ten Commandments tonight. I think it's on every Easter. You know, Charlton Heston. Uh, it's my favorite movie of all time. Uh, at the end, he's going to lead three million people out of Egypt into the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, right? Anybody know how long that journey is? Eleven days. How long did it take? Forty years. Just a little bit of a side. Don't let an 11-day lesson turn into 40 years in your life. They go to Mount Sinai. They're, get, they're given the Ten Commandments, the blueprints for a tabernacle, and then a temple. And for 40 years they wandered. Do you know why? Go back and read the text. Because they grumbled and they complained. And they took complaining to an art form. It was a spiritual gift. <laughs> now look, we all know people like this, right? We all know people that will find every dark lining in a silver cloud, okay? Like, I know people where if they hit the lottery for $5 million, they would complain they had to pay taxes, okay? It's just, there's just people like that. Everything's negative for them. And finally, God said, I have enough of it. God said that we should do everything with thanksgiving, not with complaining, giving thanks to the Lord. And God said, this is sin, and he judged Israel. He judged Israel by sending fiery serpents into the camp. Can you imagine that? You ever go camping? My wife, she freaks if there's a fly in our, in our tent. Imagine fiery serpents coming in, biting everybody. Everybody's dying. They go to Moses. Moses, someone said he'll have a flat nose in heaven because all he did was pray for these people. He got on his face and prayed. Moses prayed, God gives the remedy, take a serpent, a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. Whoever looks at this will live. Strange. If it wasn't in the Bible, we would rail against it, right? It sounds like idolatry. This is the God who said, don't make anything in my image. Now he says, put a serpent on a pole. What's going on here? Brass in the Bible is a symbol of judgment. Uh, the temple would have a brazen altar. You would bring a sacrifice. They would slit the throat. The blood would pour out. And it would atone. But on a brazen altar, it was a sign of judgment. God said when you come into the land, Deuteronomy 28, you will look for the early and the latter rains. You won't, not like the Egyptians who look at the Nile on this level, you'll look to me for the early and latter rains and I'll water you. He said, but if you turn away from me, the heavens will become like brass. So brass is a sign of judgment. The serpent's easy. Sin, right? That old serpent, the devil, who tempted Adam and Eve in Genesis, that's easy. So sin would be judged on a pole, and whoever would look at it would live. Now, again, it seems like a strange remedy. But it happened, people were cured, and they moved on. Now, this is a true account. Here's why I know. Because later, when King Hezekiah comes along, hundreds of years later, he was a good king, he was a reformer. He found the people worshipping this serpent on the pole. And this is human nature, they actually kept it around, venerated it. Just like today, if you go to Rome, you'll see a lot of these type of things. He takes the serpent on the pole, he breaks it into a thousand pieces and says, Nehushtan, you worthless idol. Today, it's the symbol of the medical community, right? Ascalaeopis, the serpent on the pole. Your doctor probably has it on his white coat. It's a true story. Here's what we need to understand. There was no power in the pole. 
You don't need to go on pilgrimages anywhere. You don't, need to, you don't need to touch statues or do things like this. There was no intrinsic power in the serpent on the pole. So where was the power? Let me share a few things with you. And this is why Jesus tied his mission to this. Number one, man has a sin problem. If I, if I preached that 100 years ago, you'd applaud. But today in an entitlement therapy culture, Pastor Bob, you can't say that. After all, you know, these people had to eat broccoli when they were little. And they were forced to do this and that. And, you know, our parents did this and that to us. Can I tell you what your parents did to you? They passed down in their genes to you what was passed down to them. And that is a sin nature. Started with Adam. Sin came by Adam. And it's been passed down ever since. My grandson is six months old. It's not a matter of when he'll sin. If he'll sin, it's when will he sin. We all like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us, the Bible says. We are all sinners. Every last one of us. Israel's sin was unbelief. God sends him fiery serpents. And the venom of sin was killing them. Now, the venom is interesting. Because you didn't buy at the, you didn't die at the bite. It took a while for the venom to get to your heart, and that's what sin does. It starts slow and small, and in the end, it brings death. James said this, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Watch this. It's very logical. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Then sin, when it's full grown, brings death. Do not be deceived. Leprosy was a type of sin. It would start as a small white dot, and at the end you would lose appendages. The venom, the snake bite, was a type of sin. Sin's working in all of us. How do I know? One day, we're all going to stand over each other's grave. Sin will eventually lead to death for all of us. Now, no one in this room has to die in their sins. See, that's what's important. No one has to die in their sins. And I'll get to that in a few minutes. Three million people are in the camp. There's sin in the camp. The second thing I see is there was no cure. Do you think they tried other cures? Oh, gosh. I mean, they probably tried every religious incantation, every homeopathic device. They probably tried a hundred things. Finally, there was no cure. They run to Moses. Moses prays. And God gives the remedy. There's no cure. I was out with an older gentleman, and we were waited on by a millennial, right? And this is kind of millennial religion. And he says, hey, we're going to pray over our meal. What can I pray for for you or the world? And her answer was that everybody would get along. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> to which I felt like saying, call me back when you're married, and let me know if you can get along with just one person. <laughs> just one. Every religion claims they have a remedy. Everyone. Every religion claims exclusivity. They're the only way. Everyone says they have the remedy. 
They have their rules, their regulations. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And the one thing Luther, number one, struck down was indulgences. That you could actually buy your way into heaven. Number three. Oh, I love this one. Every person in that camp, all three million, had equal access to deliverance. Now, you know human nature. If you were way back in the line, you would have squashed everybody to get to the front, right? To look at that serpent on a pole. It didn't matter who you were in the camp. It didn't matter how much money you had, how much influence, how much power. Everybody could just look and live. Everybody was on the same playing field. It's the same in Christianity. Two thieves were on the cross next to Jesus. It says they both reviled him. They both made fun of him. If you're the son of God, come down off the cross and get us off the cross. They both reviled him. Finally, the one says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know you're the rightful king. How did he know? There was a sign, the word of God above Jesus' cross, the king of the Jews. Faith came by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Maybe he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Whatever it is, he came to faith, and he had to come to faith in front of the other guy who was reviling him. The other thief was so close to the truth. So was Judas. So were so so many. So the remedy was the serpent on the pole. Why? Because sin had to be judged. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, the Son of Man must, must be lifted up. Who's the Son of Man? The Son of Man was a messianic term in the Old Testament, Daniel and other places of the deliverer that God would send. In John chapter 9, there's an encounter Jesus has with a blind man that is almost comical. He heals the blind man. After the blind man's healed, the religious leaders throw him out of the temple. Can you believe this? Jesus cycles back to the man. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy said, who is he, sir, that I can believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him, and it's the one who's talking to you now. And he said, Lord, I believe And he worshipped him. Jesus was the son of man. Jesus was the serpent on the pole. And you're like, Pastor Bob, that's blasphemy. How in the world could Jesus be the serpent on a pole? The serpent was the source of the infirmity. And then became the source of the healing. Jesus became the source of their healing. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. If you come next week, we're in Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus is greater. He's greater than angels. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than priests. Next week, he's, he's greater than Moses. You know why he's greater than Moses? Because Moses couldn't get on that pole. No one could. God didn't say, Moses, you're the deliverer. You get on the pole. No, Moses could only lift the pole up. But only Jesus could go on that pole. Now, who was the lifter? It's interesting. Moses was. But in John 8, 28, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am He. And by the way, I am brings you all the way back to the burning bush where God said, I am that I am. You will know that I am God when I'm lifted up. So who lifted up Jesus? 
Go back and read John 8, 28. The Pharisees lifted him up. He said, when you, the religious leaders, lift me up, they were the ones. They sat in Moses' seat. And just like Moses lifted up the serpent, these men lifted up Jesus and put him on a cross. Pastor Bob, I thought you said the Romans executed him. They did. The Romans put him on a cross. The Jews put him on a cross. I put him on a cross. You put him on a cross. For the sin that was before him, mine and yours, and the entire human race, he went there willingly. Galatians tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by becoming the serpent. And he did it because he loves you so much. One writer said, every other person who ever came in this world came in it to live. He came in it to die. Death was a stumbling block to Socrates. It interrupted his teaching, but to Christ, death was the goal and fulfillment of his life. The goal that he was seeking, few of his words or actions are intelligible without reference to his cross. He presented himself as a savior rather than a teacher. It meant nothing to teach men to be good unless he gave them the power to be good. And after rescuing them from the frustration of guilt, the story of every human life begins with birth and ends with death. In the person of Christ, it was his death that was first. And that really began his life. It's the greatest story ever told. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He was the innocent sacrifice. The centurion said, surely this man has done nothing wrong. Judas said, I betrayed innocent blood. Pilate said, this man has done nothing wrong. So what happened to old Nicodemus? Nicodemus get born again? Did he say the sinner's prayer? Did he know the four spiritual laws? Being a little cynical. Nothing happened to Nicodemus that night. Do you know why? Because he didn't need Jesus. See, the caricature is true. When you tell rich people they need Jesus, Jesus said, you're talking to a weird demographic because it's harder for them to get in heaven than the camel going through an eye of a needle. In fact, Jesus said sinners and tax collectors are getting in first. The, the last are going to be first, the first last. Pimps and prostitutes are coming in first. you know why? They've come to the realization they need a Savior. That's why we hear the stories. But you know what's beautiful? Nicodemus did get born again. Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a Pharisee like Nicodemus, Nicodemus, who was a secret follower of Jesus, came with Nicodemus, risked their reputation, used their own money, and they embalmed him, put ointment around him, went public with their identification of Jesus. I believe Nicodemus was born again. On my ride to church, I see one of those, like, dumb signs. You ever see them? It's a sign. A lot of them are in front of churches, but now they're seemingly everywhere. It'll say something like, seven days without prayer makes one weak. Like, weak is a week, but you're weak, W-E-A-K. Now, I call the signs dumb, but guess what? I read them all. It's unbelievable. And I remember them. And I used to think somebody sat around all week and made them up until I realized there's a book and you just go out and change the sign every week. So can I tell you what was on the sign today? It said, Easter is the one day you should put all your eggs 
in one basket. That's what I did 33 years ago. What does it mean to be born again? It means to accept Christ as your Savior, but not like, let me check the box, it's Easter, and then I'll get back to my own life. It means you go all in. It means he drives, you don't. It means all your eggs go in one basket. 33 years ago, I was born again, and it's been an incredible ride and an incredible journey. Here's how I want to end the service. I want everybody to close their eyes. We don't do this often here. And I'm going to make appeal for you to say a prayer to accept Christ in your life. Now, here's what I know the appeal is not. It's not to somebody who just came from the outside and never heard any of this. You know what it generally is for? The person who's been processing it for a long time, but now God's telling you today's the day of salvation. And by the way, imagine it being on Easter. I'm not going to coerce anyone. I'm not going to tell you to commit to something you don't believe. But here's what I will do, and I don't care if there's one, a hundred, or no one. I'm going to have the worship team play this song. I'm coming right down on the floor. If you want to surround me and pray this prayer and accept Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you will be born again. With confession of the mouth and with the heart, we enter into salvation.